Wonderful consequences. Romans 5, I encourage you to turn your Bible. This is a tremendous passage. I hope I can do some level of justice to us today. We're only going to be looking at the first five verses today. There's just an abundance of riches in this chapter, and we'll take our time to consider it. Now, Paul has been taking quite a period of time to emphasize that we can only be justified, declared righteous before God, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And he's been doing that from the middle of chapter 3 until the end of chapter 4. And now Paul moves on to focus on some of the wonderful consequences of being justified through faith. And he's going to be looking at this for quite a few chapters. And this will include, in chapter 5, being delivered from wrath. Chapter 6, being delivered from sin. Chapter 7, being delivered from the law. And then chapter 8, being delivered from death. So that's what we'll be looking at in the, the months ahead. But we're going to be starting here in chapter 5 at some of the implication of being delivered from wrath. One of the very sad things is that many Christians can fail to grasp the full consequences of being saved, of being justified through faith. And this is sad because one of the results is that they can live like spiritual paupers instead of knowing the spiritual riches that are available to them in Jesus Christ. And this will mean they will fail to experience the joy that they could have as a Christian. It can also mean a, a lack of power in their witnessing and in their Christian service. I wasn't going to mention football, but I will. Uh, just imagine the match yesterday, trying to forget about it, but imagine the match yesterday uh, and Eric Ten Hag at halfway through the second half. Just imagine that match when United were losing and he had on the bench Mbappe, Messi and Kane. Takes a bit of imagination, but imagine that. And he had those three, probably three of the best forwards in the world. And he had them on the bench. And he didn't bring them on. He had those resources, but he just ignored them. And in many ways, as Christians, we have such wonderful resources in Christ. So often, we don't realize that they're and don't make use of them. So I hope you see today that when you think of how this affects our joy and our witness and our service, I hope you see that as we think of the consequences of being justified through faith, you realize this is a very important subject and a very practical subject for how we live day by day. The first thing we see here by way of consequences of being justified through faith is peace with God. In verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when it speaks about peace, it isn't speaking primarily about a, a feeling of peace, although that will be present also, hopefully. The peace being spoken of here is about a new standing before God through faith. It means that God's hostility towards us has ended. You see, in considering people being brought to salvation, often it is thought that the, the biggest problem is getting people who are alienated from God 
to get them to return to God and for them to have a different attitude towards God. But in accomplishing salvation, people's attitude towards God, while it is a problem, it is not the biggest problem in achieving salvation. The biggest problem is God's attitude towards people. God is hostile. God is angry towards people. God's wrath hangs over sinners because of their sin. And God's wrath, God's justice, justice have to be appeased, have to be satisfied. And that is what Jesus was doing on the cross when he shed his blood as a sacrifice of propitiation. That word which means he was satisfying God's wrath, he was propelling away God's wrath from sinners. So the biggest challenge in salvation taking place was God's wrath being satisfied, God's attitude towards sinners being changed. And that could only happen through the cross. When a sinner comes to God through faith in Christ, and trusting in what he has done on the cross, a wonderful change has taken place. Now instead of God being angry towards them, and instead of God's wrath hanging over them, they've entered into a relationship of peace. The conflict has ended. The hostilities have ceased. And why is there peace? Why has the conflict ended? Well, the moment a sinner trusts in Jesus Christ, at that moment, they're now considered by God to be, now listen to this, to be as righteous as Jesus. That's amazing. If you're a Christian, you're considered by God as being as righteous as as Jesus. And that's because when you trust in Jesus, his righteousness is accredited to you. It is placed on your account. So you think of that. Through faith in Jesus, you're now considered as righteous as Jesus. So there's no need to try and earn your way into God's good books. There's no need to try and keep yourself in God's good books. By earning. Now, that doesn't mean we can just live whatever way we please, but, and we'll come to that later on in Romans. But in a sense, when you trust in Jesus, when you are truly trusting the Lord, you're at peace with God, no longer under wrath. Hostilities have ended. And that cannot change. What a wonderful thought. So the first consequence is peace with God. The second consequence is the grace in which we stand. If you look there, beginning of verse 2, through him, that's through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, I've got to be honest, I was very tempted to sort of amalgamate this point with the first point about peace. There's something similar there, and to make things a bit simpler, now, there's no doubt there's a significant overlap between being at peace with God and our standing of grace. But there's something different being highlighted here 
as well. And we can see there's something difficult because as he introduces the standing of grace, he says the word also. So it's something added. There's something here which is additional to the peace we have of God. Let's read that again. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, most commentators don't like the word access here. That translation, the word access, this access, because the reason they don't like it is the word access, it can portray that we achieve this. We do something in regards this access, that we have some way contributed to this standing of grace being spoken of here. And a lot of commentators say that a better word here would be the word introduced, that we were introduced to this standing of grace. Because they say behind this word is a picture of someone who has no right to approach a king, no right to come into the royal presence of a king, being brought into the king's presence by someone close to the king and being introduced to the king. And really the picture here is that we are a people who have no right to grace. We're separated from grace because of our sin. But Jesus, who is not only close to grace, Jesus is totally tied into grace. Jesus brings us into grace. He brings us into a new standing before God, which is all of grace. Now remember, Before we have faith in Jesus, we're alienated from God, we're under his wrath, we're under his curse because of sin before salvation. And what God would deliver to us eventually because of our sinful standing would be his wrath and judgment in hell forever. That's what we deserve by nature. But God doesn't act in that way towards Christians. Now through faith in Jesus, We have a standing, not of justice from God, but of grace before God. And therefore, instead of receiving wrath and judgment, because of our faith in Jesus, because of Jesus, we receive love, mercy, goodness, kindness, undeserved favor, and blessing upon blessing upon blessing. In our standing of grace, we receive from God gift after gift after gift. We don't deserve it. None of us do. But it comes to us through that faith in Jesus. It's as if we were shut out of the... Let's use a a picture of uh, Smith's toy shop, okay? Our young people relate to this. Uh, one of the lovely things of being a dad is you can go into a toy shop and not look, think you're weird. Uh, and that, so you can go in, better than sitting around clothes shops. But you go, into a, you go to a toy shop and it's closed. You have no access to it. And then someone comes with a key and they open the door or they hit the code, whatever way they get in. And you're brought into this toy shop and you can receive anything you want out of it. That's a picture of grace. That's a picture of the change in our standing. In a sense, if we can say this reverently, we're brought into God's toy shop to receive gift upon gift upon gift. 
I think it was Sinclair Ferguson tells the story about two uh, pastors from the former Soviet Union. This is quite a number of years ago. And they went over to America and they were speaking at a conference and they were taken to one of the great big American supermarkets. One of those supermarkets that basically nearly sells anything. And they, when they went into the supermarket, they were just blown away by what they saw. And they said, is this a government supermarket? In other words, can only government officials come here? And the reply to them was, no. Anyone can shop here. And the two men burst out in tears. Because they knew an existence where they could go to shop and get a few wee things and it's very restricted. Now they're coming into shop where there's abundance that they had access to. That's what it means to have a standing of grace. Through faith in Jesus, we receive gift upon gift upon gift. You see a wee picture just flicking up there. If you're in London and look at the, the rooftops of London, there are two things you will see on rooftops quite close to each other. There's the Old Bailey, the Court of Justice. And just a short distance away from it is St. Paul's with the cross on top. And this is a picture of our change in standing before we should be at the Old Bailey because of our sin, receiving justice, judgment for our sin. But because of the cross, we receive mercy. And with that mercy, grace, gift, upon gift, upon gift. Isn't that why the writer of the Hebrews describes when we pray, where do we come to? A throne of grace to receive gift upon gift upon gift from God. Do you have that picture of God? Of a God who just gives, delights to give to those who have faith in His Son. And then thirdly, we have rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. If you look there at the end of verse 2, he says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This word rejoice, Paul uses it several times in the, in the book of Romans. It's, he sometimes translates it about boasting, about people who are boasting their sinful things. It speaks of someone who is really consumed by something, something that takes over our thinking, our life almost completely. And what takes over these people, Paul says here, people who are made right with God through faith, is the hope of the glory of God. The word hope in the Bible speaks of something that is sure and certain. And the reason why it's sure and certain, because it is something that is resting on the promises of God who cannot lie and who cannot fail his people. And the great hope that Paul speaks of the believer having is the glory of God. Now, Paul has spoken of the glory of God already in Romans. He speaks of how it is something that mankind has lost. Uh, back in Romans 1, when he was speaking about idolatry, he says that people have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul is saying that people in worshipping idols, 
They have brought God down from his glorious presence, his glorious, awesome nature. They've lost sight of that and have now made God to be something quite small in their own image, in their own imagination. They have lost sight of the glory of God. That is one of the saddest things about the impact of sin in people's lives. They have stopped to see a sense of wonder at who God is. And then in Romans 3, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our lives should be all about the glory of God, knowing the glory of God, living in the light of that glory, living lives that reflect the glory of God. But sadly, due to sin, that glory was lost in people's lives. I was listening the other day to an alliance counsellor in Newton Abbey. And I don't mind saying it was a lands councillor because I've got to say that party, I believe so much of his policies are, makes them one of the most unchristian parties I think there is. And this alliance councillor, he was talking about his motion and his first motion as a new councillor, which appears to be a lands policy, was seeking to have prayers taken out of the beginning of council meetings. Now, as I was listening to that debate, there's part of me would urge it always to pick up the phone and ring in. And I thought, I restrained myself. I thought, no, no. But as I was listening to the debate, it's, some of it was so plausible. Well, people have different faiths. People have different ideas about God. And something should not be imposed upon people. That was sort of the thinking. But as I thought about it, it just hit me, you know, this man has no concept of the awesome nature of God. He has lost sight of the glory of God. That he wants to do his best to have any mention of God taken out of a council meeting. And that's at the very heart of sin today. It's Losing sight of the glory of God and not giving God his rightful place. But what does salvation do? Here's the wonder of salvation. It brings us back into an understanding and an experience of the glory of God, of the wonder who this God is, who has made this world, who sent his son to be the saviour. It brings us to a, a fresh grasp of the greatness of this God, this eternal being. Salvation brings God right back into the very heart of our lives. And Paul rejoices here at the sure and certain hope that one day he is going to come into the closer presence of God. He's going to see that glory, that majesty, that awesome nature of God. He is going to see it face to face. And what will that be like? What would it be like to see the glory of God? It takes a, it creates a total different attitude to life. You see, we picture coming up about Moses, and do you remember Moses when he received the Ten Commandments at the time? And when he came down, his face reflected something of the glory of God, and, and Moses in his condition, that's where he could only have a little tiny glimpse of the glory of God. He couldn't cope with the full glory of God with the earthly body he had. 
But when he came down, his face shone with the reflected glory of God. So much so that he really disturbed the people and they got him to put a veil over his face. And Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says about one of the purposes of the veil was it it caused people not to see, or one of the results of the veil, it caused people not to see that the glory was fading. And what Paul is saying, basically, the glory that indeed Moses experienced at Sinai, there's a much greater glory, there's a much greater revelation of the majesty of God in the gospel. And yes, one day we'll be in glory if we are Christians. One day we'll see the Lord face to face. But Paul's argument is, even now, in this world, through the word, through God's truth, we can have a great sense of the glory, of the worth of God. But one day, we will see God face to face. Recently, I was visiting one of our senior members and had a lovely time just talking about heaven. They prompted it. They were asking me questions about heaven and about what happens when we die, what happens when Jesus comes again, what happens in the world to come. We had a great conversation. And boy, you could just see the joy on that person's face as they talked about heaven. Do you have that? Do you have that hope of heaven's glory? And so they have this, they rejoice in this hope of glory. And then, fourthly, they rejoice in sufferings in verses 3 to 4. And Paul's joy is not just about what's going to happen in the future. He's rejoicing about what's happening to him now. He says in verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, why does Paul rejoice in his sufferings? Well, he rejoices in his sufferings because he can see God's plan. Reading on in verse 3, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. We're back to hope again here. Now, Paul was not speaking about here of someone who had a very comfortable life and didn't know anything about suffering. Paul was beaten many times. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked on three occasions. He went without food. He knew what it was to be homeless at night. He experienced terrible, terrible hardship. So he's speaking about suffering here, not as someone who had an easy life, but knew probably much more about suffering than most of us ever have or ever will. But he can rejoice in it because he sees a plan in it. And the plan is, you see this coming up, suffering leads to endurance, which leads to character, which leads to hope. In other words, God is getting us ready for glory through suffering. Speaks about endurance. That's the idea of of patience, of, of constancy, of persevering. It leads to character which speaks of someone who is being proved by being tested. The person is developed, they've grown, they've matured through their suffering, which leads to hope, which is the certainty of God's promises. And Paul is saying that through suffering, and 
he never says that suffering is a good thing in itself, but it's something that God uses for good. Through suffering, the Christian should be someone who moves from suffering to endurance to character to hope. They should have a growing joy in their lives, even through suffering, as they are brought closer and closer to the Lord. Now, this is very challenging for those who are suffering to hear this, and it's easy for me to say it, who's had a a life of relatively little suffering. But this, do you remember what the hymn says about God? The hymn says, God will never cause his child to have a needless tear. He'll never cause his child to have a needless tear. And when a loving father allows his children to go through suffering, it's because God has something very important to teach us. God has a very important work to happen in our lives. And for a loving God who would send his son to die on the cross, for for that loving God to allow us to go through suffering highlights the absolute importance to God of us growing in holiness, of us maturing and being prepared for glory. It's a wee bit like when you bring your child for their first injection or one of their injections and they're very wee and they're really happy, they're good fun and they're playing and entertaining those in the waiting room and you just think, if you only know what's ahead of you. And then they go and they get that jab in their arm. Why do you do it as a parent? It's because you love them. And you believe that that short period of pain is better for them because of the consequences. And it's the same with the Lord. And if we struggle with this, look to the cross. Look to Jesus. There is the God we can trust. He uses suffering to create endurance, character, and a deepening hope in the glory to come. But this coping with suffering, it's not just a matter of gritting your teeth and grinning and burying it. There's something more wonderful that happens here. And it's not just up to us, which is wonderful. Which brings us to our final point. God's love through the Holy Spirit. Look what he says in verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And Paul is speaking here of the certainty of hope that comes to people through trials. He speaks here that it's the experience of God's love that comes to them at the same time through the Holy Spirit that creates that certainty of hope. It's not just something we have to muster up ourselves. It's something that God gives to us through the work of the Spirit. Now, in Romans 8, Paul will, in much greater detail, elaborate on the work of the Spirit, and we'll get there eventually, but God willing. But here we have a wonderful little taster. Paul not only says that the believer will know something of God's love through the Spirit, his language is 
much more wonderful. It's much more elaborate. The ESV, which I have before, says that God's love has been poured into our hearts. The King James Version says God's love is shed abroad in our hearts. The Amplified Version says God's love has been abundantly poured out within our hearts. And so what Paul is saying, the experience of believers, and and notice here, he uses the word constantly, we, through this passage. His experience, who has suffered so much, and the experience of every believer should be an abundant knowledge and experience of the love of God in their hearts through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who's the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit, who is Almighty God. The Holy Spirit's role is to make the Father and the Son real to us. That we experience the love of the Father and the Son in our hearts day by day. It's as we study God's Word, as we pray, as we seek to live for Christ, we need to pray that God's Spirit would make that love of God more and more real to us. And that's what enables a person in suffering to rejoice in their suffering because of their experience of the love of God. It's this which enables us to have joy in our lives. It's this experience of God's love which enables us to be bold in our witnessing, enables us to persevere in our service. It's not something we can create, this, this experience of God's love. It's something we study God's word and we pray for as we live for God. Wonder, did you realize that you should be praying for this? And a greater awareness of the love of God poured abundantly into your heart. You see, a, a church filled with the Holy, with members filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with a sense of the love of God, that is a church will will turn this village and community upside down. What your school needs, what your workplace needs, what your family needs, what your community needs, are believers who have such a knowledge and experience of the love of God in their hearts. So quickly, just to recap, what are some of the wonderful consequences of being justified through faith? And if you haven't grasped this, and if this hasn't touched your soul, read this passage over again until God touches your soul with this. The wonderful consequences are peace with God and an end to hostility. Grace in which we stand, we receive blessing and gift after gift. Rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Rejoicing even in our sufferings because we see God's plan. And God's love through the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts. Let us pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for his shed blood on the cross. And we realize that what Jesus has done, yes, is to save us from hell. But, Father, it's so much more. It's about having peace with you, to have a 
loving relationship with you. It's about living in a state of grace with you. It's rejoicing in the glory of the God who you are and how one day we'll be in the presence of that glory, but longing to see it even now. And even in our trials and sufferings, to be able to rejoice because we see you at work, we see your plan. What an amazing God you are. Oh, Father, that we would just know you, that we would know your love, that we would know through the ministry of Spirit the reality of our God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We would know that reality more and more in our lives. Father, far too often we have been like a little child who is just paddling at the beach, just in the shallow waters. And we haven't gone into the depths with you. Lord, give us the grace to go into the depths with Christ, the depths for which he has died to bring us into. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.